Now, if you would please take a copy of God's Word and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. If you're using one of the Bibles there in the pew rack in front of you, you want to turn to page 884. We will be considering Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. This is the last sermon in our Sunday morning sermon series, looking at selections from uh, Luke. This isn't the end of summer quite yet, but it is the end of our summer series. If you haven't been here, uh, what we've been doing for the last uh, seven weeks is looking at selections from Luke's gospel that are unique to Luke's gospel, whether it be parables or encounters that Jesus has with sinners there in Luke's gospel that uh, only Luke gives to us. That's what we've been considering. In doing so, we've been seeing the wonder of the Savior's grace and his love for sinners in it. And here we come to uh, another passage that is uh, unique to Luke, uh, particularly the prayer that Jesus prays in verse 34 is one of the first of seven sayings that we can piece together from the four Gospels that Jesus said on the cross. This prayer is only in Luke's Gospel, as well as the conversation between the criminals and Jesus there in verses 39 through 43. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus was crucified and between criminals, but here it actually records the encounter and the back and forth between them. And that's where our attention will be given today. Characteristically, as I've pointed out nearly every week here, uh, there is a surprise in the story. Um, The surprise is that in all of human history, the very first person to have a positive response to Jesus on the cross is one of the men dying next to him on that Friday. Let us pray that we too would have the proper response of faith and belief, trusting in the Savior. So before we read God's word, let us ask for his help. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is the scriptures that give us clear revelation of you because the Bible has been breathed out by you. And it is profitable for our teaching. It is profitable to Reproof us for correction to train us in righteousness so that we would be whole, complete, equipped to live lives of service and worship to you. So we ask that the same spirit that inspired the scriptures would be at work among us as they are read and proclaimed this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from Luke 23, beginning in verse 32 through verse 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. 
Soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. The prisoner marched the first of three scaffolds. He climbed the 13 steps to the trap door. A guard tied his legs. An officer asked for his last words. The condemned man responded, I place all my confidence in the lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. Then he turned to the prison chaplain and he said something. The black hood was pulled over his face. The 13 cold noose was put around his neck and he dropped through the trap door. The chaplain was Henry Garrick, a Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor. The year was 1946. The prisoner was the Nazi war criminal, Joachim von Ribbentrop. He had been Hitler's foreign minister. He was rightly executed for his war crimes. But prior to his hanging, he had come to saving faith in Jesus through the ministry of Garrick. Ribbentrop's last words to Garrick were, I'll see you again. Now, I would guess there's mixed reactions among us here this morning when you hear that story for a number of reasons. Some, maybe you delighted in this trophy of grace. Others, maybe more critically and understandably critically, may have said, is this right? That a war criminal of such horrendous history one who participated in such crimes that he at the end receives forgiveness? Well, of the 15 that were entrusted to Reverend Garrick's care there during the Nuremberg trials, not all of them placed their faith in Christ. Some continued to their last breath to rail against Christ. And Garrick was very careful in preaching the gospel that he did not immediately offer communion to these men when they made a profession of faith, but he waited to that it was surely a credible profession of faith. But yet, we ask ourselves the question, shouldn't men like Ribbentrop be beyond forgiveness? Whether we say it aloud or say it to ourselves, we've thought this. Many times, you and I, we've thought this about others. 
They don't deserve to be forgiven. They are beyond forgiveness. But we've also thought this about ourselves. Considering our deep and dark secret sins that we hope are never uncovered. We wonder if we are beyond forgiveness. So that is why this morning we close this series at the foot of the cross. And from the foot of the cross, I want you to see the Savior's infinite love in verse 34. I want you to see the Savior's power to save in verses 39 through 42. And then in verse 43, the Savior's completed work. The Savior's infinite love, the Savior's power to save, the Savior's completed work. Verse 34, we see the infinite love of the Savior displayed in His prayer. His prayer for His executioners. The scene is set in verses 32 through 38. They have arrived at the place called the skull. Aramaic, it is Golgotha. When you take that, that Aramaic word and you translate it into Latin, that's where we derive our English word for Calvary. They've arrived at Calvary, the place of the skull. These men have been carrying the crossbeam. They have been sentenced to execution by cross. They have been beaten. They have been tortured. And now with open wounds, now deprived of, of water, food, and sustenance, they will be hung on a cross there to die, however long it will take. We learn that in, from the other Gospels that these men weren't tied to the cross as men sometimes were, but they were nailed to the cross. And that because it was the Passover, that by the end of the day, the two other criminals who were still alive, that their legs were broken in order that they could no longer push up on the nail between their feet in order to grab a breath. And they too, like Jesus, most likely died of asphyxiation there hanging on the cross. But Luke, in the Greek, just gives us three words. There, they crucified him. It's a scarcity of words. Maybe because his audience had seen crucifixions. Crucifixions were a public event. It was the most torturous, hideous way to condemn a criminal it was reserved for enemies of the Roman Empire and those who committed the grossest crimes. It was reserved for slaves. It was the most humiliating way to die imaginable. It was done publicly in order to deter others from doing the same acts, committing the same crimes. It has been said that the person crucified died a thousand deaths. Only the damned in hell come close to knowing what Jesus suffered on the cross. However, those in hell have never been to heaven, but Jesus descended from heaven to die on a cross. He descended from infinite delight and the closest possible fellowship with the Father to the depths of hell there for six hours hanging on a cross. So this is part of what we mean when we profess in the Apostles' Creed, He descended into hell. But Luke only says they crucified him. Because it's more than just the physical act that the New Testament writers are interested in. They want us to see the theological interpretation of the historical fact of Jesus' 
death on a cross, and his resurrection. Historical fact with divine-inspired interpretation. We continue to set the scene. There, on his right and his left, there are criminals fulfilling what was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. He's numbered with the transgressors. There, at his feet, are soldiers casting lots for his garments. They're gambling for his clothes. One of the perks of, of being an executioner by way of crucifixion was that whatever belongings the man brought to the cross, you got to keep. But it was hardly payment for what it must have done to those men's soul to crucify fellow human beings. People stood by, watching, gawking, as these men are losing their very lives, losing control of their bodily functions with no way for help. The rulers of the people, in verse 35, they're scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself. That word saved there, it's with the root sozo. It's saying, he healed others. He did these acts. The Jewish leaders, they were aware of his miracles and how he healed others. Let him save himself if he is Christ of God, his chosen one. They've seen what he's done and they rejected him as the Messiah. And they have manipulated the courts in such a way that now they get what they want. Jesus hanging on a cross. The soldiers who are then gambling for his garments offer him sour wine. Nasty stuff. Stuff reserved for the poorest of the poor. And as they hand it to him, you can imagine one of them pretending to be the cupbearer to a king. In verse 37, they too taunt Jesus. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then above him, we're told in verse 38, there's the mocking charge. This is the king of the Jews. This is what Pilate put before Jesus, saying this is the charge in which he's condemned. He probably did so to, to mess with the religious leaders who have, in his mind, forced his hand to kill this innocent man. This is the scene in which Jesus utters the prayer that he has prayed in verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This prayer could be considered characteristic of all Jesus' ministry. It epitomizes Jesus' heart for sinners. And there it is, revealed in this prayer. And there's several things to observe from this prayer. Well, the first thing is that this is totally the opposite of what you would expect from someone being crucified. It's a remarkable request from a dying man. And in the face of the injustice that he is suffering and the brutality that he is suffering, what does Jesus do? He prays for his tormentors. He doesn't pray for his own well-being. He doesn't ask for revenge. He prays for the eternal welfare of his executioners. It's totally opposite of what a crucified man should be doing at that moment. But then that's not it. We see that here Jesus is a consistent man. That to the very end, he's practicing 
what he preached and what he taught his own disciples. In Luke chapter 6, he told his disciples, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If there ever was a moment that it would be okay to forget to pray for your enemies, this would have been the moment, but he doesn't. Jesus practice what he preaches and he prays, Father, forgive them. Then he says, for they know not what they do. This is important. It helps us understand sin. That sins committed in ignorance still require forgiveness. Sins committed out of ignorance still are under the justice and judgment of God. Now, God is a just judge, and he will judge according to the person's light that they had. If all they had was creation, they will be judged accordingly. But the scriptures say that creation testifies that there is a God. The scriptures say that God has given every person a conscience in which the moral law has been written, and they will give an account for that. And those who know the Ten Commandments and those who know God's word and his law will be judged accordingly. Ignorant sin is still sin. Every person down at the cross is culpable. They just don't know how culpable they are. They don't realize the depths of the crime that they are committing. And here Jesus, seeking their forgiveness. Forgiveness that they could not earn, forgiveness that they could not deserve, but forgiveness that must be purchased. And that's the hard thing about forgiveness, isn't it? is that it doesn't cause the debt or the pain to go away. It just means that someone else has paid it or someone else must absorb it. That is the challenge we experience when forgiving one another quite often. And we know all too well that forgiveness really does require sacrificial love. And here it is on display. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life, John 3.16. But God showed his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is the love of God. Not that we have loved God, but that he had loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That middle passage, God showed his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. The other two, the apostle John gives to us, one in his gospel, one in his letter, 1 John 4, 9 and 10. 1 John 4, 9 and 10, that was our assurance of, port, of pardon this morning. Both the ones from John, they emphasize the love of God the Father expressed in giving the Son on the cross. But here in Jesus' prayer, we are convinced that the Son is not merely fulfilling the mission given to Him, but He shares the Father's love for sinners. The Son loves like the Father does. And therefore, He prays for the forgiveness of His enemies. Nowhere else can you find such love.
but in Jesus. The mockers mocked him, saying, weakness is keeping you on that cross. But it wasn't weakness that kept him there. It was sacrificial love, the infinite love of the Savior. Here, see the Savior praying, filled with compassion, not just for the pitiable, but filled with compassion for the terrible. Here is the Son of God hanging on the cross. And for you and I, this does away with any hesitancy that we would have, any pause, any caution in saying that, I don't know if there's forgiveness for me. Look at the Savior bleeding and dying, praying for his enemies. And approach him not based on anything that you would deserve, but on this display of infinite love and find the forgiveness that you can only find in Christ. It's also important for us to see Christ in his most difficult hour practicing the very thing that he challenged his disciples to do. And it helps us to stir our hearts to pray compassionately for others, especially for the lost, to pray for notorious sinners and scandalous sinners, and to pray for those who have sinned against us. Remember, Jesus is praying for those in his most desperate hour, making things worse, sinning against him. See the Savior's infinite love, but also see the Savior's power to save. We see the Savior's power to save in verses 39 through 42 demonstrated in the conversion of one of the criminals. Before we think about the converted criminal, let's take a moment and consider the one who, it says, he railed. What did he rail against Jesus and say? Well, here it is. It's the third mocker of Jesus on the cross. You had the religious rulers, you had the soldiers, and now you have the man hanging next to him. And what did he say? Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This third taunt from the criminal, it's satanic and ironic. It's satanic that the formula is similar in all three of these taunts to what Jesus heard from Satan when he was in the desert in his time of temptation early in his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, what did Satan tell Jesus? If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. If you are who you say you are, then deliver yourself. You've been fasting here for 40 days. You must be hungry. If you're really who you say you are, then rescue yourself from this hunger. And then on the pinnacle of the temple, what does Satan tell Jesus? If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then he twists scripture and says, surely the angels will not let you fall and strike your foot against a stone. Satan says, demonstrate it, prove it. Let all see if you're really the Christ. And that's similar to these taunts here. You claim to be the Messiah, the one chosen from God. Well, what a better time than to come off this cross and save yourself and save us and prove it. It's satanic in this taunt. It's also ironic. All three of the taunts are ironic because they're hanging on the cross. Jesus is doing 
what is necessary for salvation. And he will be vindicated in his resurrection. It will not be his final defeat. It will lead to his complete and total victory. It's ironic, their taunts. Because they're all true. But then there's the one who rebuked him. He rebuked the one who railed. It's the other criminal. Something has happened to this man. In the other gospels, we don't see this dialogue. We're just told that there's two criminals and they were told that they both reviled him. That the ones crucified with him reviled him. Now this man is no longer reviling. He's a converted man. He has come to Jesus. He has turned from his sin. He is a man saved by grace. He has a new heart. He has eyes to see. He has ears to hear. And in these short couple of verses, there's tremendous evidence of the saving grace. It's astounding what we can see of saving grace in this man's life. We see it in what he says. We see it in what he confesses. We see it in what he professes. We see it in his request all coming there on the cross. Saving grace is evidence in what he says to the other criminal. What does it say? He rebuked him. Now this man who's come to the cross, he didn't start with just, you know, committing capital crimes. That's hardly ever the case. This life of crime probably began with petty misdemeanors and sneaking out against his parents' wishes and staying out past curfew and it graduated up and up and up and up and such to where that now he's a criminal, a thief, an enemy of the state in such a way that Rome says it is necessary that this man experiences public execution for crucifixion. He's a bad man. We can be sure that he has a bad rap sheet. That those who knew him understood this is what he deserves. And here is this man now on the cross rebuking the other criminal. Something has changed. Someone who had, with no tinge of conscience before, harmed so many people is now concerned about the eternal welfare of this other criminal. It's a 180 in this man's heart. Here we see it in rebuking the other criminal. We also see saving grace evidence in what he confesses about himself. He has a true sense of his sin. In verses 40 and 41, and simply stated, he says to the criminal, we are justly condemned. Justly condemned. Tells him, do you not fear God? He says, we are receiving what our sins deserved. And I'm concerned about what comes after this. That not only are we given account before the state, but we will give an account before our creator. Do you not fear God? This is his confession about himself, that he is a sinner condemned, a sinner being held over the flames of hell. But then, it's not just that he confesses himself to be a sinner. No, saving grace is evidence in what he professes about Jesus. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. He draws a contrast to himself and the other criminal to Jesus. And throughout Luke 23, Luke over and over again wants you to recognize Jesus as the innocent sufferer. That he does not deserve to die for any sin that he has committed. 
This man, he professes Jesus' perfect obedience. That Jesus is the innocent one. Pilate has affirmed his innocence. Herod affirmed his innocence. Now this criminal affirms his innocence. There'll be one more. There'll be a fourth. In verse 47, after Jesus dies, the centurion there at the cross will profess that he is innocent. Luke wants us to see that. But he also professes that Jesus is a king. He says that, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in this profession, he is professing that Jesus is the Christ. The one that the others are mocking him for claiming to be. He says, no, you truly are. It's an implicit profession, but it's a profession nonetheless, saying that he is the king of kings, the Christ of God. And then saving grace is evidenced in what he requests of Jesus. He has a short prayer. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And here we see the man has an apprehension of the mercy of God offered to him in Christ. And with grief and hatred of his sin, he turns to God. He says, Jesus, remember me. You must think for a moment how sweet it must have been on Jesus' ears to hear a sinner say his name, seeking salvation in that moment. The word remember is important. In the Old Testament, when God delivers his people, it's because it says he remembered them. For example, in Exodus 6, he hears the cries of his people in bondage in Egypt. And it says that he remembers his covenant with them. And so throughout the Old Testament, when God remembers his covenant, he delivers his people. So this man asked Jesus to remember him. It's the equivalent of saying, have mercy on me, deliver me. But as much as we are encouraged by this man's example of faith and repentance, we do need to step back and consider the big picture. How was this man converted? We're not told if this criminal had previously heard of Jesus or heard his teaching. I tend to think that this was the first time he met Jesus. And during the crucifixion, Jesus isn't saying much at all, is he? He's not. Here, he says, a prayer. Could it have been that this criminal hearing Jesus pray, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That that was what the Holy Spirit used? Or could it be that he is the object of that prayer? There's a question to who Jesus is addressing this prayer specifically. Is it everyone there gathered at Calvary partaking or is it specifically then the soldiers there in the immediate context below him? as they are gambling for his garments. Maybe the converted criminal is the direct answer to Jesus' own supplication and intercession. There are some holes in the story, how this man goes from being a reviler to a believer, but we don't need to know the details to know what has happened. Jesus has saved him. Jesus, on the cross, is seeking and saving the lost. Jesus on the cross is still looking for lost sheep. As he is dying for the sins of his sheep, he's still gathering them into his fold. 
simultaneously paying for the sins of his people while still rescuing one next to him. See, the story is not primarily about the criminal's faith. It's about the Christ who saves. And I can imagine there being, if you could, a split screen if you were able to view this. A split screen between there at Calvary and in heaven. And imagine the angels watching this scene perplexed and in awe as the King of kings and Lord of lords is stripped and nailed to a cross and there as the wrath of God is being poured out onto his soul. And then, and then the sinner makes a profession of faith in the Savior. Remember in Luke 15, what Jesus said happens in heaven when one sinner repents. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so it goes from silence and awe at the events of the cross to an eruption of praise and the roar of heaven as this man says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The silence is broken as another sinner is granted repentance. And while Jesus himself is dying, he is giving this man new life. And any of us who have any sense of saving faith know that we've been given new life. We've been given this faith. That saving faith itself is a gift of the Savior. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. The same words, the same prayer, the same actions, the other criminal is hardened. This man comes to faith. It reminds us of Isaac Watts' hymns, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place, the stands in which it says, Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Oh, it is quite the wrong application of the dying thief to wait to come to Jesus. None is promised tomorrow. It is good to be reminded of that every day. But some mistakenly may say, well, when my hour comes, I take comfort in that dying thief and then I will seek Christ. We got to remember that there were two there hanging, one railed and one rebuked. And as J.C. Ryle put it, one thief was saved that no sinner might despair, but only one that no sinner might presume. The Savior's power to save. And then in verse 43, the Savior's completed work. We see the Savior's completed work testified to in Jesus' response. He gives an assurance. He gives a promise to the dying criminal. And in it, the Savior himself is testifying into the sufficiency of his own death for sinners. It begins with, truly, I say to you. Jesus uses this phrase, truly, I say to you, as a saying, 
This is something to pay attention to. He doesn't often use it. It's also saying amen. He's agreeing with what the request has been brought to him. He's saying, truly, I will answer this. Truly, listen to what I'm about to explain to you. What does he say? Today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise. From Golgotha to paradise, the same day. Paradise here is a a Persian word. It's from the word for a, a king's garden. It's picked up in the New Testament to be another way to describe heaven. And until the new heavens and the new earth, it is where the righteous will be. It is spoken of in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Paul says, I know a man that was caught up into paradise. And then in Revelation 2, 7, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. But remember, it's a garden image. That's the image that Jesus, as he is dying, he thinks of paradise and the garden. It reminds us that the first Adam was expelled from the garden for his sin. And Jesus says, what I'm doing is that I'm reopening the way to fellowship with God and what I am doing right here. And that Adam and Eve When they sinned, they became aware of their guilt and their shame. And what came with that? They looked down and said, we are naked. And throughout scripture, nakedness is a sign of guilt and shame. And now Jesus, fulfilling Psalm 22, his garments being divided among them, hangs naked, exposed to all the elements, exposed in all his wounds to insects that would burrow in and increase the torment with nothing to bring relief, hangs there naked. Eden opened up. Eden restored. Jesus bringing sinners into unbroken fellowship with the triune God. Paradise will be purchased that day. But what is paradise like? Well, the fellowship with God revolves around Jesus. He says, you'll be with me. It is Jesus that makes heaven, heaven. Think about it. There'll be many precious reunions in heaven. If you're a Christian and you've lost a loved one who died in the Lord, their body is in the ground, their soul is with the Lord. And one day, either at Christ's return or when you die and your body goes into ground and your soul goes to be with the Lord, that you, you'll see them again. There'll be many precious reunions. Many of you long for those reunions. But when you arrive in heaven, you're not gonna first look for that spouse you lost, that sibling you lost, that grandparent, that best friend you lost. You are running to your Savior. 
They will all have to wait in line. And none will compare to seeing Jesus face to face. That's what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1.23. He loved the believers there. But he said, my desire is to depart. As much as I love you guys, and I want to serve you, and I want to see Christ maturing you, he says, to be with Christ, that is far better. In verse 21 previously, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, now we share communion with Christ and his glory, but in fractions, in measure. And upon death, we enter into greater communion with Jesus. Jesus prepares a place for believers to be with him. And he tells this criminal that it's today. In doing so, he's correcting this man's theology. This man had an idea that the Messiah one day would come at the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous and establish his kingdom. It would appear so that he's thinking that Jesus one day, would you remember me? And Jesus is saying, no, it's right now. It's right now, today that you will be with me. This means that there's no, what some have called soul sleep. That when you pass from this life into the next, there is conscience existence in the glory of heaven. Westminster Shorter Catechism 37 sums it up. The soul of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. Their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. It means that there's no soul sleep, that there's conscious existence, both for the righteous and the unrighteous. But it also means that there's no purgatory Again, J.C. Rowell points out, if the thief needed no purgatory, the whole doctrine of purgatory falls to the ground. Purgatory being the idea that you are a Christian, but not ready for heaven. So there's somewhere in between where you go for further refinement and purging of your sins. No, no purgatory. All that is necessary for him and for any sinner to enter the glory of heaven was paid for on that Friday by Jesus. And that's why Jesus can say, the work is done, it is finished. Today you will be with me in paradise. This story gives tremendous proof that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because here this sinner, he doesn't get to make restitution. He doesn't have an opportunity to give anything to the poor. He doesn't receive the sacraments. He doesn't have time to get a big study Bible and start memorizing scripture. He won't go to any Christian conferences. He won't sign up to serve in the nursery or to help with the ushers. He won't go on a mission trip. He won't give any money to the church. He won't get confused about the nature of grace and battle self-righteousness like you and I do. No, he simply receives what Jesus offers and he rests in Jesus alone. But if he was to come off that cross by some miracle, how would he live? 
having been so close to the flames of hell and then rescued by infinite love and sovereign grace, how would he live? The gratitude would be overflowing. He would live every day in light of his Savior's gift. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If he was given another day to live, he wouldn't live it for himself. He would live it for his Savior. And we can't say it simpler than this. Three men died that Friday on a cross. One man, he died with sin in him and sin on him. And he paid for his sins and will so for all eternity. Another man died with sin in him, but sin wasn't on him. It was on the Savior who had no sin in him. And that day, he was with the Lord in paradise. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, says the old hymn. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen. Let's pray. For the grace of God has appeared. And what grace you have shown us, Heavenly Father, in the giving of your Son. And so having viewed the cross, may it stay before our eyes with eternity in focus, training us to now renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The only one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Oh, what a wonder it is to belong to Christ. And what hope we have that we will see him one day. Praise God. Praise God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.